meet James Fox, a 37-year-old entrepreneur and aspiring humanitarian. He decided to run 30 ultramarathons in 30 days and chose the Manny Pacquiao Foundation to be its beneficiary. Waking up early, I'ma never be late. Writing what I want, like y'all better relay. Then we celebrating life till we better see straight. They trying to hold me back, but I'll never delay. Nah, I never delay. Nah, I never delay. Play that type of music, make them. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of The Coach's Call. Today we have a very special guest. We have James Fox, currently a personal trainer in the Philippines. He's part of Team Pacquiao um, and he's here to tell his stories about growing up in London and now finding a home in the Philippines. He was well known recently for an inspirational campaign he ran for the Manny Pacquiao Foundation. It was the 30 in 30. And he's here on the podcast to talk more about the insights of his life. Welcome, James, to the show. Thank you, Clive. Thanks for having me on. Um, hope, hope you're well. It's uh, evening time here in the Philippines, and uh, I'm looking forward to having a great chat with you today. Definitely. It's really good to see you. Um, yeah, so give a little introduction. I always ask the guest to give an introduction from you, from you, from the man himself, uh, for the people that want to know more about James Fox. All right, so I grew up in London. I was born in London in the early 80s, 1981. Uh, so I typical council estate background. Grew up um, with four brothers and sisters to a single mother, nothing uncommon there. Um, pretty much spent the whole of my childhood playing football, various other sports, uh, representing my school at athletics and things like that. And um, yeah, just a very, very normal London upbringing, you know, nothing, nothing spectacular. Um, had to kind of fight our way through everything and just make the best of our life as possible. And um, you find me here today in the Philippines where my journey has brought me over the last 10 years or so. And uh, I'm sure we're gonna touch on that soon. Good, no, we will definitely touch on it. Um, so you said growing up in London, yeah? Um, I remember when we crossed paths, we always had good discussions about sports and you mentioned it just there. You know, I would say we're, we're kind of sports enthusiasts in a way, right? Um, tell me kind of what, what got you into sports? Uh, what attracted you to that, that um, to, to being active and getting involved with sports? Oh, I mean, it's in my blood, really. I mean, I, I was kicking a football from the age of two or three. It's like my, my dad, has a background in football. He was, um, he was a very good footballer. He captained uh, Sheffield United youth teams all the way up to the age of 16. He was um, sought after in places like Holland, uh, where he was asked to come for trials in um, Feyenoord and teams like that. So he, he, was, um, he, he was a child prodigy, if you want to call it that. Um, so I... I, and, and growing up in a place like East London, you pretty much don't have nothing going on apart from, uh, you know, a group of 10 or 15 kids with a football. And that's basically all you do. I mean, it's no, it's no um, coincidence that a lot of uh, Premier League footballers seem to come out of that type of environment, you know. 
And um, so that's basically where it all started for me. I used to watch football religiously on TV, uh, would play from morning till night. And um, that carried over to school as well, where we'd just literally play football all day in school. And um, yeah, that's, that's where it all began for me, really. And um, I mean, we, me and you both met in the gym, didn't we? Where mm. I was training in there. You, you was there with um, your friend Tiago who's a trainer himself. And we just, like you said, we connected straight away. We had that kind of uh, affinity in terms of sport. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's the same story for a lot of kids, like I said, who grew up in that type of environment as well. They just, they don't have anything. So they literally just chuck to football or, you know, uh, whatever type of sport they're into and just get on with it, you know? Shout out Tiago. Um... <laughs> yeah, um, so it's it's quite it's quite interesting because going back to when we met and stuff, um, what I realised is we actually have a lot in common. Uh, you're a United fan too. Tell me how you actually became a United fan. <laughs> growing up, growing up, growing up in East London. <laughs> I don't know if I want to admit that in this day. You should have been ten years ago. Do you know what I mean? But oh, no, I don't. This is the same. I have to do this explanation so many times. It's so crazy how I got to support Man United. But um, again, touching on my dad, he's a Tottenham supporter. But him and my mum broke up when I was very young. They kind of separated when I was around five or six years old. So I didn't have that kind of fatherly influence. And it was actually a, a friend of mine who turned out to be one of my best friends. We were five years old. Uh, coming home from school one day, which would have been 1985, showing my age here, right? And um, it was just a, it was a very innocent child conversation, and it was like, what team do you support? And I was like, Tottenham, because that's all I knew, you know. At the age of five, it was just what my dad had put in me, and and he was like, no, from today you're a Manchester United supporter, and I was like, oh, okay then, and. It, <laughs> I mean, it's such a bizarre um, way to come to support a team. And, and before people uh, wonder, Man United weren't that great back then either, you know. That was back in the mid-80s where they were just finding their feet. And so I can't be accused of glory hunting. But, um, yeah, that's, that's a, it's a quite a crazy story how it all began. And one that people don't often believe, but there you go. That's up to them, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you can't you can't fault the loyalty because ever since then, what you're five years old. Ever since then, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you actually 39, 39 this year, so it's a long time, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so ever since then, you've actually showed that loyalty to to the Red Devils. So um, yeah, uh, how I became a United fan is is a bit straight. Well. I came up in the, in the glory years, so obviously, you know, you see, you put on your TV, uh, you want to support a football team. Um, I don't come back, I don't actually come from a football background. So, um, uh, my dad, he, support, he supports Chelsea, but he didn't, he's not one of those uh, fathers who really puts it on their children. He kind of let me decide what team to support. And I grew up in the years of, you know, I think 85 was actually before Fergie, Fergie actually came, isn't it? Or eight, I think he came around 89. It was on the cusp. I mean, Ferguson came in like 85, 86. So 86, that was one. Time. Mm. Although me, mm. like, in terms of me watching football, it wasn't like something I would sit down and do every week at the age of five. It was more like, you know, gradually got more involved in it and watching it on TV. Uh, and then it was around sort of 89, 90, where 
we did actually start winning things that my interest just kind of peaked and it was like, yeah, this is my team, you know what I mean? Um, and uh, we kind of went on a mad run for a couple of decades and now we're paying the price for it. So all the stick I received today of all my friends is, is overdue, but thankfully I'm in a country where they can't get me. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's interesting because I always ask how football football fans grow their love for their team um because now you see a lot of man city supporters because the younger generation grew up on yeah. man city and i never saw that growing up you know the teams were always united it was actually liverpool um which you know you're still now but um it's all it always you know what you grow up around has an effect on on the team that you support especially especially if you don't have that football background um and it's just, I always ask that question because I try to find um, if they're actually true supporters. So you've been supporting it for yeah. years and we've had the conversations, you know, we watch, we, we're, we're so passionate about the team. We even talk about the like interviews that the former players talk about. I remember we were talking about the Oxford Union the other time. Um, yeah, and I think definitely I can spot a true fan when I see one. Um, so now... Go Sorry, Gregory. I'm just going to add to that. I think sometimes as well, and I notice this a lot about basketball, especially now that I've uh, come to the Philippines, is that uh, some people, they grow up following players specifically. Like, I, I have a friend here in, in Manila who he just loves LeBron James. Yeah. And he will literally follow LeBron James' whole career. So, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but he was at he started in Cleveland, right? Then he went to play for Miami. Yes. Then he, did he go back to Cleveland? He went back to Cleveland, and yeah. And he's playing for Los Angeles. So my friend has literally gone from supporting Cleveland to Miami to Cleveland to Los Angeles. And I found, I found that quite um, odd to, to get my head around, you know, because as you know, football fans are very, very um, almost cultish in the way that they follow their team. Yes, and from what I noticed from basketball, like, and I've been to a few NBA games in 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 um, Los Angeles, and I never got that kind of impression in the crowd where there was like a lot of fervor and passion. And I'm not saying they're not passionate, but it was just a completely different vibe, you know. And uh, I mean, I don't know if that's the case for all NBA teams, or um, I know, for example, in NFL, there's a massive. Um, uh, it's more like football, you know, the cultish base and the, you know, the passionate fans. And but yeah, I found that really strange about like my friend just follows whoever team LeBron James plays for, you know. <laughs> That's a good point, James, because I've actually met a lot of people that support basketball teams just because of players. Um, I yeah. mean, I'm a I'm a Dallas Mavericks fan because I grew up in the Dirk era. And this was before he won the, 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 the main championship that they won. Chicago um, Bulls, just the record. There you go, see? Um, and I'm, I can, I can, I can, ever, yeah, I can <laughs> link that because in the 90s, that's probably your teen years, you, you were seeing yeah, MJ. Yeah. Um, and so he, even, even me, like I'm putting, I'm not, I'm, you know, basketball's not my first sport. I do like watching it and that, but even now, I'm drawn. I always tell people, oh, yeah, I love Chicago Bulls, but it's purely because of Michael Jordan yeah. and the impact that he had on our era as a sportsman, you know what I mean? Exactly. So, you know, um, it does have a huge effect. But as you mentioned, the football side, uh, it, 
it's kind of like a religion, isn't it? You, you really, the, the fans buy into the club. They understand the history. Um, and uh, it's weird for a team sports if you, if you actually look and dissect it and research into it because you're following an individual, whereas it's a team sport. But it's strange. You're following this individual to different teams. You don't really care what the team represents. You just want to support the player. So it's, a, it's an interesting insight, actually. I think, um, just to, to end on that point, um, I think where basketball has always had that kind of franchise mentality where players are easy come, easy go, football is now becoming that. So it does seem a bit strange that people can be glued to one yes. team. But if you look back in the history of football, football was a sport where the players were loyal to the team for their pretty much their whole career. In fact, there were some teams where the players would only come from the certain area that the team was in. I remember, like, for all you, uh, your followers that know about football, uh, Celtic from Scotland, they won the European Cup in the 60s with purely players that were born within 30 miles of the stadium, of the, of the, of the ground. And you just don't... That's unheard of now. So I think football's becoming a bit more basketball-orientated in terms of the franchise mentality and the way that players are just traded around. And you'll probably tend to find now that supporters, um, the, the younger guys of our generation now, they'll probably wouldn't find it too hard to swap teams here and there. Like, oh, I'm a Chelsea supporter or oh, now I'm a Manchester City supporter, which is okay. You know, every era is different, but yeah. No, but I, I always say, I think this is um, a very good point. I think it's actually got to do with the internet as well, because I believe the internet's changed everything. You actually get more of an insight into the athlete's life, which a lot of, um, a lot of the younger generation, they, you know, they can idolise these players more and see exactly what they do on a day-to-day. And that builds the, the kind of connection. Um, and that's why they follow them so, so in a way, religiously and and wherever they go like you said they're happy to jump from team to team because they want to be like that would you agree yeah no definitely i mean the access on sports now is unbelievable you only have to put your finger on your phone screen and it's just everything's there in front of you you've got the statistics you've got the diets you've got the the the, the training programs you've got the private life the cars the money the girlfriends the clothes you can literally you're, you're basically like living in someone's front room, aren't you? You know, and that's that kind of access that we have today. Uh, that in itself brings a lot of pressure on the players. Um, but unfortunately, that's just the age we live in. But yeah, it, it has its good points and it has its bad points as well. And I remember growing up in the 90s and the 2000s, you know, and the, and the football players, uh, they didn't really have voices. Like you'd have to, yeah. you have to, you'd have to go to the tabloids to read, I remember going to my local newsagents or going to shops to actually read about players and their insights into their lives, you know. Uh, now, like you said, they have that power to, to just tweet, to put on Instagram. Um, but then, like you said, it comes with the, the negative as well. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, 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 it's just how open everything is, especially in sports now. It's, it's, it's actually, it's amazing in a way how it's evolved. I think it is good in a way, though, that the players get this kind of platform. It does, like you say, it does come with these negative things, but um, it also gives the players an opportunity to show the world who they are 
but not only that, but also to be able to put across important messages. And you look at the kind of time we're in at the moment, yeah, with um, yeah, a lot of um, you know, racial undercurrent going on in the world and things like that. You know, key figures in certain sectors can come out and like look at Raheem Sterling, for example, the way that he's portrayed himself across and supported black players and things like that. And um, I believe there's a few um, American footballer, footballers who have done the same thing, who are very big on the, um, the whole race thing. So that does bring advantages, but also at the same time, it has the disadvantages of the um, intrusion in people's lives. But it's a kind of, it's a balancing act, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, I agree completely, James. I think it's, um, you know, uh, it's, it gives them an identity. Uh, the, the fans can really connect and, and see uh, what they believe in, what they do on the day-to-day. Um, but a lot is a sensitive topic because, in a way, they really have to protect themselves, uh, what they throw out there. Um, and they're guided on this as well. They, they definitely have a team that just watch over them. It, there's a lot of things involved in this. But uh, as I mentioned, the overview of having like channels, you know, it's, it's good for their endorsements. You know, um, it's good for, for careers after football or, or, or any sports because you can build up your platform, build up your brand, and then, you know, you can open up different things you know jesse lingard's got for example his own youtube channel um and people just uh people's got their own clothing line you know uh shout out memphis the pie's got you know he's a rapper he does his own music i mean it's it's different things which you never see it 15 20 years ago do you know what i mean uh, and it's it's nice to see well players are brands now aren't they in yeah. themselves whereas back in the day uh the club would be the brand the player would be the commodity now the players are the brands. You look at guys like Paul Pogba. Um, we just touched on him there. Jesse Lingard. Um, you could even cross that over to basketball with guys like LeBron James, Steph Curry. These guys are all commodities. That are, they're all brands themselves now. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. yeah it got, does, it does got, definitely happen. Um, mm, they've got powerful platforms, I know. Do you know I mean? And strong following. So, I agree. So, um, moving on into the point where... So... Uh, Describe your life in London. So you, you brought up your upbringing, you know, East London, uh, loving football, went through the, the, the education system here. Um, what, do you, what does James do from there? Do you, what, what kind of aspirations did you have? Did you actually see yourself getting into the fitness industry, which you are in now? Um, speak more about that. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it was a typical council estate upbringing, you know. Um, I, I had aspirations to be a footballer. That was my dream, you know? And, I mean, my story probably resonates with a lot of people out there. A lot of talent, just didn't use it the right way. So I, even up to the age of 15, 16, I still had, like, minor opportunities to go into a good level of football. But, I mean, I was playing in um, semi-professional leagues at the age of 18. Um, it used to be called the Dr. Martins League. I don't know what it's called now, but it's about four or five divisions down from the professional league. So it was a bit, I mean, I've played in the FA Cup and things like that. And it was just a story of wasted talent, basically. So I, again, same with school. I left school when I was 15 years old and I went straight to work. Um, I went through a series of jobs and, you know, just kind of figuring out what I wanted to do in my life. Um, 
you know, going out on my friends, partying, doing all that kind of stuff. And um, I finally um, stumbled across um, working for London Underground. So I, I was working for London Underground for over a decade, which only finished in 2017. But yeah, I've always had that kind of, I actually wanted to be a, um, when I realized I couldn't be a footballer, I then kind of moved my uh, point of attention to actually the other side of it, to the coaching side of it. So I went through my um, uh, FA coaching badges. Uh, when I was about 23, 24 years old, I started to take my badges. I started then becoming a football coach. So I used to coach kids. Uh, my dad at that time then was a coach for Tottenham Hotspur Ladies Club, who my sister played for. So again, you see this all runs through my family, you know. And um, yeah, I, I, I did have a brief couple of years where I was interested in going into the coaching side of it, but it was more a case of lack of opportunities against the kind of money it was going to cost me to educate myself to get to a specific level, which kind of threw me back a little bit more, you know? So I just went through kind of that, that life of working. I was a train driver, as, as you know, and, um, but I've always had that kind of thing in the back of my mind that I love coaching, I love teaching people. I'm interested in the physiology and the anatomy side of, of the human body when it comes to sports. I love nutrition and things like that. So I kind of had an inkling that that was always going to be my path eventually, you know, and here I am today. Um, yeah. Good points, James. Uh, it's, it's nice to see kind of the journey because uh, when you mentioned about coaching, uh, you're completely right in terms of there's just not enough financial stability to coach in, in a city like London, you know, which is an expensive city. Unless you're coaching at the top um, where the coaches actually can make a living off. Uh, but a lot of the coaches here, it's sad to say they do it part time or they're even doing it voluntarily. I mean, um, and they don't even get paid. It's just, like you said, it's the passion that's been built inside um, people that they love the game. For example, yourself, it's in your blood. You know, uh, it's your family's been, been competing for years. Uh, myself, you know, I love basketball, which is why I got into coaching here in the UK. But again, it's not my full-time job. You know, I'm doing other things on the side, but I'm just managing to fit it in to a point where I'm, I'm actually, in a way, it, it's a good opportunity for me to um, expand my coaching and, and hopefully progress in future years and still keep it part of my life. So I found that structure. But it's, it's quite sad because, as you said, the coaching, you get that one-to-one -one, um, relationship, not just in, in personal training, but team coaching as well. It's, it's very impactful, I always say. Uh, I love the relationships you, relationships you build because, you know, I've worked in a nine-to-five. Um, and I was isolated and I, I felt very lonely, you know, um, you worked in the TFL. I can imagine it's not the same environment as when you're coaching someone and you're getting that, you know, getting that inspiration because you feed off their energy as well. Would you agree? Yeah, no, I tell you, hundred percent. I mean, any, any coach would probably say the same thing. I, I, I know for me personally, there's nothing gives you more of a buzz of satisfaction than seeing someone carry out what you've told them to do. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Whether that's um, like coaching a defensive play on the basketball court and then your team pulls it off on the, on, on, on the game day or 
you, you've got a bunch of seven-year-old kids who you're teaching soccer drills to um, on a Wednesday and then on a Sunday over Hackney Marshes or whatever pitch it is in London or around the world, they're, they're, they're doing exactly what you're, you're putting into them. Um, also, it goes same with personal training or strength and conditioning coaching. When I see uh, an athlete or an individual coming from a place where they hate to be or they, they, they're striving to get to the other place and they finally get there and the satisfaction is just, yeah, it's, it, you can't buy that kind of satisfaction. And I think probably the only other thing that can compare to it is if you actually experience it yourself as a player or an individual, you know, which that bypassed me already. So I kind of started to get that, that feeling from, from the coaching side of it, you know. I agree. Um, I remember my coaches when I was young, so I still remember my football coaches when I was six to, to 11 years old. I remember I joined my first um, youth club when I was, um, I actually believe I was around seven. Um, and I still remember my coach's name. I still remember the Saturday at Battersea Park where he used to train me and, and the team. Um, and it has that long lasting effect, you know, uh, it's, and it's a very rewarding job as a coach. And those role models in a way we can call them definitely role models uh yeah. they've definitely inspired me so i've had basketball coaches football coaches and they've definitely inspired me and i've always kind of taken their style and and the way they led me when i was young and implemented it into the way i coach now it's probably how you would you say how your personal training you always it helps build you as your personal as your own personal trainer would you agree yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. Uh, you can never stop learning. Uh, like you say, you pick up things off certain individuals as you go through your life. might not even be a coach. It might be a teacher. It might be a friend. And um, I think that's where coaches uh, are good at becoming coaches. Is they, they have the ability to digest that information and pull it out to, a good, to, to good use, you know. So it's a, it's a unique um, role in society, you know. Coaching, whether that's in sports, whether that's in business, whether that's in education, takes a takes a certain person to be able to do that. But um, yeah, it's it's rewarding, and we need more coaches. You know what I mean? <laughs> Definitely, I, I believe I always like to use the word game changers. You know, life changers. That's what I think coaches are. Um, okay, so when we're looking at your career, you know, you're in London, um, you're, you've been working at say the TFL for a very long time. Um, you're still keeping, as you mentioned, you're coaching here and there. So you're keeping active uh, where I met you, you were in the gym. Uh, we always just have these conversations about, you know, sports. Uh, tell me the first time that you actually uh, met Manny. So uh, for those who don't know, James is part of Manny Pacquiao's team. Uh, he's, a, he's a team Pacquiao athlete. Um, you've been part of his training camps in the past vegas you know um training more recently against Furman, right uh, you're part of his training camp for Furman. um yeah so when did you first meet the the people's champion God, well i suppose i suppose i should set, shed some light on how i got involved in the philippines in the first place i mean i was uh, pro, pro, uh i was about 23 years old i was working a job and um you know, it's the old boy meets girl story. I met this girl, turns out she was from the Philippines. I knew the Philippines as a country. I knew it had a flag which looked like such and such. I didn't know anything about the country. 
But uh, we were together for about five years and I learned a lot about the culture. I made a lot of friends from the Filipino communities and I just fell in love with it straight instantly, fell in love with it instantly. And that kind of led me to want to get to the next level, which was going out there and visiting the place. And um, long story short, me and the girl broke up and I'd still held that passion for the country and I started, I started um, traveling there. Um, what I also didn't touch on before is that I'm a massive boxing fan. Like, again, I got that from my dad. Like, he was hugely into boxing. So I was always watching boxing as a kid. And Manny Pacquiao was the guy that I followed um, through, obviously, having that connection now with the Philippines with that girl. And then also starting to learn about Manny Pacquiao before he became famous. And then watching him box and he was like, he's the same height as me. He's the same weight as me. We have the same uh, stance. So for me, it was like, I have to watch this guy because he used to train in boxing as well to keep fit. And then it was back in 2000 and let me get this right, 13. I, I was going to the Philippines for a vacation and I literally, said to my friend um just out of the blue in london i said oh, i'm gonna gonna book a flight to general santos city which is where manny's from uh during my trip because i just want to see where the guy's from you know maybe there's uh i can go to his gym maybe there's some shrines or something to him that i can <laughs> check out so all, all of that crazy stuff what a fanboy would do to someone that he idolizes you know what i mean and um it was just really random that my friend turned around and said, um, oh, I, know, I know someone that is from that area and their family's involved in politics and maybe they could you know, arrange a meeting for you with Manny and whatnot. So I was like, yeah, great, sounds, sounds amazing. Obviously, you don't think about the possibility of it actually happening, but this was a good few months before my trip actually took place. So I kind of just left it and it went out of my mind. And about two or three months later now, I'm, I'm about a week away from my trip. And I was like, oh, my, my friend didn't get back to me about this whole Manny thing. So I was like, oh, let, let me just follow her up, yeah? So I text her and I was like, oh, what happened with the meeting with your friend and that? Did you speak to him? And she was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'll, um, I'll get back onto him today. Bro, within 24 hours, I was sitting in a um, uh, Christian church in Ilford, in Essex, with a bunch of people I've never met before. Um, and at the end of the whole kind of ceremony, uh, ceremony thing, this guy approaches me, he introduces himself. He, he's actually the pastor that was leading the uh, ceremony. And he was like, come on, let's go to dinner. And I was like, okay, no problem. And we sat down for dinner and he was like, um, you know, our friend has told me your story that you'd like to meet Manny and all that, that you're going to the Philippines again. And I was like, yeah. And then he said, look, when you get there to my town, my family will be there waiting for you at the airport. They will then look after you for the whole duration of the time that you're in our hometown. They'll take you anywhere you want. They'll take you to any site you want to see. And then from that, they'll try to arrange the meeting with Manny. So I was like, great, sounds amazing. At this point, I'm still dubious. I'm still like, this ain't gonna happen. You know, if it does, it's a bonus and whatnot. So 
again, I get to the Philippines. It's the second week of my trip. I'm now standing in an airport where I've never been in my life and it's quite daunting and stuff like that. His daughter's actually waiting there, this guy's daughter with a sign with my name on it. So I goes over there, she picks me up and uh, I still think I'm dreaming at this point. And <laughs> she gets a phone call while we're in the car and it's like, <clears throat> basically it's the vice mayor of General Santos City, Manny's hometown. And they're asking for me to be brought to the mayor's office, like uh, City Hall, whatever it is. So I'm thinking, God, is, is this a setup or something? Am I going to be like, you know, am I on some kind of reality TV show where they're pranking people and all that? But no, got to the City Hall. Um, they treated me, as you know, you know, like Filipino people are just so amazingly warming and, you know, welcoming. It was the whole thing of like, you're no longer um, a visitor here, you're a guest of our city and all the rest of it. And then anyway, cut a long story short again, two or three days later, it happened to be Manny's birthday. And I literally got a text saying, um, find your best clothes, we're going to Manny's birthday party. And I was like, oh my God, you know? <laughs> so here I am now faced with a possibility with a guy that I, he's pretty much my idol, I would say in the sporting sense, probably apart from, I'd say Ryan Giggs and David Beckham were the guys I followed growing up, but Manny was a guy that I just idolised religiously for a good decade before I even met him. So yeah, went to his birthday party and there I am, pushed in front of Manny Pacquiao with my jaw on the floor and not knowing what to say. And it was just a case of like, um, hi Manny. And they was like, oh, James has come all the way from London to celebrate your birthday. And, and he was just like, thanking me and everything and I was just like bro I couldn't believe it you know and I mean you I think you probably remember that time you know I was posting the pictures on uh, Facebook mm. and that and I was just so gobsmacked and um yeah it was it was a really cool they say I, I've heard that old saying like you should never meet your idols but this one couldn't be further from the truth you know the man was just he was just so amazing you know and um and then basically after that I stayed in touch with a lot of his family members who I met on that night, like his cousins and all the rest of it. So that's basically where it all started from, man. So 2013, yeah. And you've kept that, I mean, you're, you're, you're part of Team Pacquiao, you kept that connection, um, yeah. say, at, from that time you, you went to his birthday. Um, so say you went back to London, this was... Um, after that amazing trip, you know, inspiring, meeting the man himself, seeing the family. Uh, that's a very intimate and a personal moment in, in a way. It's uh, a great, you know, a great privilege, like you said, to meet your idol. I've heard that quote before, you know, you should have meet your idols. Um, and it's partly true because I've met some of my idols and they weren't particularly the most friendliest, but it's, a, it's great to see that uh, he is truly the people's champion because that's um, just another... Uh, 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 in a way a truth behind it because of the way he treated you and the, what he's done for our country um, so how did you keep that relationship so you went back to London uh, when was the first time that you actually got involved with the team do you still remember yeah so it was like I think it was about six months after I met him he was fighting uh, he'd just come off a loss to Marquez and he'd had another bout in between um, I, I'm sure you, all you guys out there remember Manny getting sparked out um, flat on the canvas by Marquez and then 
he had a couple of comeback fights which which were in Macau in um, just off mainland China so obviously I'd stayed in touch with his cousins and that and one of his cousins just messaged me on Facebook one day I was like do you fancy coming out and watching Manny in Macau so I was like yeah of course so she was literally like get yourself a flight book your hotel don't worry about the flight tickets and the rest of it we'll sort all that out for you I was like amazing I'm out there I was I could have went the same day the same day that she messaged me I was so excited even though the fight was three months later but yeah so went to Macau and I think that's where I kind of um, establish a, the biggest bond with the team in general because Manny's got two separate factions to his team he's got an LA side because he's obviously spent a, a lot of his career in Los Angeles and fighting in Las Vegas and also in the Philippines so now I'm here in Macau amongst everybody, making friends, mingling, meeting family members, meeting teammates, just basically getting on with everybody. And that's, that's where it all started. Um, I think he was fighting a guy called Chris Algieri, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So that was, that was the point at which I pretty much immersed myself into Team Pacquiao without such a uh, it was no official um ceremony to say you are now part of the team or anything it was just a case of like we like you and you have a good personality you're a you're a cool guy and welcome do you know what i'm saying and i think that's the mentality that manny himself has if he likes you he'll take you you know what i mean he'll treat you as a friend he'll take you on board there's no kind of airs and graces about the guy and and um yeah it was I think the first time that I actually really got involved in the training side of it in terms of training with him was when he fought Floyd Mayweather, which was the next year in 2015. This is going to actually go into my next question, you know, because you said there's two different teams, you know, he has, he has the one in LA, uh, the one in Philippines, is that correct? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's two different teams as such because everybody knows everyone, but it's more like obviously them guys live here. They're pretty much all Filipinos as well. So yeah. it's a lot of um, Filipino-Americans that live in Los Angeles. Mm. You've got to remember Manny spent a lot of his career in Los Angeles and he built up that friend base. And, you know, before he even became the superstar that he did become, there was literally a, just a handful of people with him and they're still there today, which is nice to see, you know, and I've become friends with them. And so, yeah, there, there's like, there's two factions. I'd say it was more factions rather than teams. So you've been to General Santos, uh, you've been to uh, Macau, uh, you've seen what it's like on fight night, being around the team. Now, as you mentioned, the biggest fight of, I would say, uh, my lifetime, um, the Mayweather-Pacquiao fight. Um, how was it like to be part of the, the camp in, in LA? That must have been electrifying. Mind-blowing. Unbelievable, mate. I mean, you saw, you saw the pictures and the videos I was posting at the time, and it's actually hard to quantify what you're a part of until you look at it a couple of years later, because when you're in the actual bubble of it, I mean... LA at that time was just, I mean, I was obviously in America at the time, but I even, I, I knew that back in the UK, things were kicking off. It was just blowing up. People were talking about it. Even my mum mentioned it to me and she never asked me about boxing. She was like, 
oh, um, that guy that you know is fighting against Floyd Mayweather. Is it on TV <laughs> yeah. and that? And I was like, oh, but even my mum's talking about it. That's how crazy it's getting, you know? But yeah, I mean, LA was crazy during that camp. And there were days where we'd be running, because Manny runs out in the open. He don't, he's not one of these guys who's just going to limit himself to behind closed doors. You know, you know, he's like, he's a people's person, as you say. He, he's a man of the people. He wants to get everybody involved. But yeah, there was like, some days it was crowds of 2,000 people in a park watching him train and stuff like that. And it was just, it was pinch yourself moments, to be honest with you, yeah. And um, it was, and then the whole, obviously going to Las Vegas for the fight. And I think if I remember correctly, that might have been the first time I'd ever been to Las Vegas as well in my life. I've been there five times now, four for boxing and one for something else. But it was the first time I'd been to Vegas and it was just like the bright lights and you had Cinco de Mayo because Floyd Mayweather always used to fight on Cinco de Mayo. So you had like the, 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 the Mexican, uh, Mexican communities were over having a great time. You had all the Mayweather and Pacquiao fans. You had all the world's media was there and it was just like, wow, what is this, you know? So yeah, it's craziest experience of my life without a doubt. Well, you're talking, uh, say, you know, being part of that whole fight night, the whole fight, the, as I mentioned, the biggest fight of the well, my lifetime for sure. Um, Vegas is always very busy. I remember talking to people and they're telling me that, you know, there's always something happening here, something happening there. Um, it must be even more crazy on fight night, right? Like after parties, parties before. Uh, describe how it was during the Mayweather Pacquiao time. I think obviously it was my first time there, but having been there three, four, five times, uh, three, four times since, it was very unique because even I think a week or two weeks before the actual fight, you couldn't even book a hotel. You couldn't book a hotel in the whole of Las Vegas. I mean, that is, you can book a hotel anywhere in the world the same day, it doesn't matter where you are, but for that particular weekend, which was obviously Cinco de Mayo and the Mayweather Pacquiao. I had um, a suite in Las Vegas and I literally had four or five of my friends who couldn't get a room. They were just bumped in with me, you know? And it was just like the whole atmosphere. You go on the streets, it was electric, people were having a great time. The casinos were full. Yeah, I mean, you could easily lose your mind in a place like that at a time like that, you know, but you're just trying to suck it all in. You're trying to just enjoy the moment. I mean, can you imagine what it must have been like for, the, for guys like Manny and Floyd and that to just be like, I created this, this is me, this is my moment, you know? It must be unbelievable. And the city, the city never sleeps anyway. Uh, imagine during fight night, something's always happening. As you mentioned, you know, different communities are coming together. You know, the Mexicans are there, the Filipinos, you know, the Americans are there as well. Um, what was the feeling after the fight on the camp? You know, it was a, it was, it was a gutting result to be, to be, to be honest. Um, but you know, how did, how was it, how was that feeling being part of the team at that time? Do you know what? I mean, it's not, it's not a secret because it's been told, the story's been told, but we kind of knew, and I don't want to make excuses here for Manny because he's not that kind of guy, but I think about two weeks before the fight, 
there was um, a particular morning where he was training in the park with just Dharma Run and whatnot, and he didn't look right to me. He just didn't look right, and I couldn't put my finger on exactly what it was, and he just what he wasn't shadow boxing and stuff like that. And I turned to my friend and I said, "There's something wrong with him. I don't know what it is, but there's something wrong with him." As it turned out, he had a problem with his shoulder. The the um, the guys inside the team wanted to pull the fight. They wanted to pull the fight. Again, this is this has come out in recent years where I think the likes of Freddie Roach, um, the, there's kind of the, the um, advisors closest to Manny. They wanted to they wanted to lynch the fight because he just wasn't fit. But I, it was more the promotional side of the thing. Can you imagine how much money went into the promotion of a Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao fight? Hundreds of millions of dollars. And it was simply a case of, guys, we can't pull the fight. You, you just have to get on with it. And I guess also an element of that would be that Manny's going to earn a nine-digit um, um, purse. There's no way they're going to pull the fight, you know? So, yeah, it was a disappointing night for Manny. Obviously, Floyd won fair and square and all the rest of it. The feeling after the fight was somber, of course, but Manny being Manny... He had his arm in a sling. He was just himself. He did his usual Bible study the day after, which was just, you know, thanking God and thanking everybody for coming and whatnot. So it's hard to read Manny when he wins or loses because he's such a level-headed guy. And I think that's what sets the elite apart from the, the good and the great. It's that kind of mentality where we don't get too high when we win and we don't get too low when we lose. And, and, and that's what keeps these guys going all the time, you know? It was the shoulder injury, isn't it? That was, is that mm. what you're referring to? It was his shoulder, right? Yeah. He, basically what happened is, um, as far as I'm aware, this is what I've been told by um, strength and conditioning coach, um, that Manny was sparring a middleweight at the time, which was like, why are you sparring a middleweight? Do you know what I mean? I mean, I don't know who's to blame for that, but he was basically sparring a middleweight when he tore his rotator cuff, and it was, it was just like, what are we going to do? So, and even on the night of the fight, there was always, there was stories that were surfacing about, because Mayweather's like the ultimate um, guy when it comes to having his own conditions and things like that, you know, which is good. It's good. If you can get any advantage, you can, you will. He was uh, denying Manny the use of um, cortisol injections and stuff like that, or basically just painkillers. He wasn't allowed to take the painkillers. So, yeah, again, don't you don't want to make excuses and things like that, but this is top-level sport, isn't it? You're always going to be carrying injuries. No one's ever going to be 100% when they step on the court when they step on the football pitch, when they get in the boxing ring. So, you know, it's just one of them things, really. Yeah, I, I think um, to the to just a normal fan, I would, you know, if, if you're not a diehard fan, you don't really see this side of boxing, you know, or, yeah. or, or any sport. They, all they see is two right. athletes or, or team people. They're just competing. But they're, uh, as you mentioned, there is a, I hate to call it, but there is the business side of it isn't it um, yeah. and there's just a lot of hands in the in, in the jar you know there's, uh, there's a lot of factors that are involved and you can't just be like okay I'm not feeling 100% so I'm not going to suit up today and play basketball or I'm not going to get in the ring and box unfortunately that's just the way the life as you mentioned as a sports athlete um, and this is what I think um, the mental aspect 
of the games should be really looked into because it's not just, yeah, he's making excuses because there's a lot behind it. And this is, it's nice to get insight into what was actually happening and, and what you were hearing in the camp. So I think it's, it's, it's very um, interesting information. Even looking back years since the fight, it's still, it's still, I can still feel that whole fight, um, the hype and the energy that was coming from it. Um, and I can still feel the emotions that I felt when I was watching the fight, even till now, because I was yeah. gutted. I'm a, I'm a big Pacquiao yeah. fan. I'm a big Mayweather fan too. So um, I'm just a boxing fan in general. I love the sport. Um, but yeah, so after that fight, you know, um, you were involved in a lot more in terms of uh, Pacquiao fights in Vegas. Uh, which, does any other fights bring out to you the most? Any, any exciting memories that you had? Um, I remember you went out to Vegas with crutches at one point. Um, describe yeah. any, any other points that, yeah, any, any other times in, with, in, with Team Pacquiao in Vegas that really sprung to your head? Yeah, I, I, um, at that particular time, as I said, I was still working a full-time job in London. So my involvement in the team wasn't, it wasn't kind of full-time or anything. Do you know what I mean? I'd literally go for the fights, join the training camps and stuff like that. I, I went to uh, his fight against Timothy Bradley, where I was like on the front row, which was just an, another amazing experience. Got to meet a lot of other boxers and stuff. And um, <laughs> yeah, the fight that he had against Adrian Broner, which was in January 2019, I had to go on crutches because I, I was actually boxing a week before he fought myself in London. I was just training and ah, went over on my ankle and tore my ligaments and I was like, oh, here we go. And um, yeah, I, I was on a plane to Vegas in crutches and, and uh, that whole weekend I spent on crutches and it was uh yeah just a another crazy vegas experience <laughs> but in a different sense of the uh, sense of the word that time so yeah and that pretty much brought brought us up to the point where i was um leaving london to good for come to come and live in the philippines and this is the next point i'd actually gonna to fly into um and you 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 made a one of i would say a big move in your life a big change uh, is around 2018, 2019, correct? Uh, yeah, I came, I, I came here 2019, March. But that plan was in place two or three years before. So I'm trying to put myself in your shoes. You know, you've lived in London your whole life. Um, you build great connections with the Filipino community. Um, started to grow a, a, a strong love and passion for our nation. Um, what decided at that point, I know you, you were planting the seeds, so you were planning ahead. Um, 2018, was it 2019, sorry again? No, I moved here, it was 2019, yeah. So 2019, now you, you've packed your bags, you're ready to say goodbye to London. Um, how was it like, what was that feeling of now starting a new life in the Philippines and how, how did it go when you first moved? Oh, I mean, it was, I mean, just to give you a little backstory to the reasons why I've done it, because um, I feel like it's important, like we're just talking there about mental um, when it comes to sports and that, but I was also going through a period of uh, mental, not instability, but I was having some issues with depression, anxiety, basically just life questions that you come across at a certain age or certain stages in your life. 
I was looking at my life thinking, you know, like I've got a great career, I earn a lot of money, um, but I'm not happy. You know, I started to become disillusioned with life in London. I'd always been traveling back and forth to Southeast Asia, as you know yourself, mate. And um, it just, I've always been one of these type of people that I can't, I'm never going to be satisfied, you know? And I just kept itching. Every time I came back from the Philippines, I was like, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. And then it was just one year, 2017 it was, I was on a flight back with my friend to London and I was just having this kind of um, loads of different emotions flying through my head at the time and I was just like I want to come here for good I want to quit my life I want to follow my own passions and I'm just going to do it you know so I got back to London I started I moved out of my flat which I was living in on my own in London I went and purposely lived with my sister and slept in my niece and nephew's bunk bed with the Disney covers on and everything, just to put myself out of my comfort zone, you know, to say, James, you have to get up every morning, you have to strive, you have to save money, follow your dream, follow your passion. And then, yeah, that day when I was leaving and it was becoming the biggest reality of my life, it was just a whole host of like, am I doing the right thing? I'm scared, I'm excited, but you know what? I'm just gonna roll with it, man. Roll the dice and see what happens, you know? So <laughs> I'm still here. I'm still here to tell the story, which is about 16 months later. And it's been good so far, you know? There's been bumps in the road, but life is full of bumps in the road, right? It's never gonna be plain sailing. Definitely. I think um, you, you mentioned it's finding that fulfillment in what you're doing in your life, isn't yeah. it? Um, and I think what it sounds like from uh your your life in london you're missing that fulfillment and you're missing something exciting and something that you wanted to do in terms of say a new journey a passion that you wanted to find um and with entrepreneurs they always have to take what we call what people call i don't like to use the word risk because i think it's quite negative but it's yeah. more about finding opportunity and and growing isn't it and and i think that's what you were embarking on. So you, you said you landed in the Philippines now. Um, you, you were staying in, in the heart, I believe in Manila, right? Um, yeah. You've already got that, that, that relationship with people, friends from, from London, you know, friends that you've met in the Philippines, you know, being part of the Pacquiao team as well. Um, now, I think this is around the time that you set up and helped with the Manny Pacquiao Foundation, correct? Yeah, I mean, anybody who's been to the Philippines or any country in this region, you'll understand and you'll know what life is like here, you know, it's not, it's not a bed of roses for most people. And I remember the first time I came to the Philippines and I was just, I was just like almost in tears, man, like seeing kids at the age of four and five begging on the street and that, and I was just like, oh, I was gobsmacked, you know, never come across that. And I mean, we have, there's a homeless um, problem in London and things like that, but you don't see kids on the street, you know? And that really shook me and it took me aback. And I just from that moment, I always said to myself, I want to do something, you know? I want to do something positive for these people. And if I can't give them money, then at least I can give them my, my, my blood and sweat or, you know, I can do stuff to help them and stuff like that. But obviously when you come on holiday, you don't have ample opportunity to do stuff like that. 
you might be able to give a little hour of your time here or an hour of your time there to visit an orphanage or you can give some food and stuff to kids on the street but it's just not impactful enough you know and I always have this thing in my mind like I want to do something out out of the ordinary out of the blue and that's where I knew as soon as I came and lived here uh, I was just like I'm gonna do something really stupid. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna do something that is gonna just push me to my limits, but it's gonna create such a storm that people can't ignore it. And I'm gonna use that to gain interest in what I'm doing, but also to spread a message about what I'm trying to, you know, in the end raise money for and help these people in a real way, you know. And that's a. I stumbled across doing the north to south country run you know through the philippines <laughs> <laughs> so um especially if you're going through a tough time i think um the best thing to do in, in when you're in certain situations is to inspire the people around you um embark on new journeys you know find projects to do keep busy you know um and what what better to actually um motivate yourself raise money for as you mentioned uh, the Philippines. Um, I've been, you know, having gone there, grown up uh, in in uh, parts of my childhood, moving, you know, spending summers there. You, it's an eye opener, you know, especially if you've never seen it before. It's, yeah. you, for example, in BGC, you get uh, the the upper, you know, the, would you say the upper class? It's all built, but then you you, you turn around just on the side road. And there's poverty there you know it's quite it's it's quite sad and 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 this is where i believe the inspiration that you you found is 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 amazing because you wanted to give back to the filipino people um which is fantastic you know um why choose the manny pacquiao foundation to help be involved with what what we call your your ultra marathon which was the 30 and 30 right you chose the manny pacquiao foundation to to collaborate Speak more about the Manny Pacquiao Foundation, actually. It was literally, um, it was like, a, um, it was meant to happen, basically. It was meant to happen because, all right, so when I landed in the Philippines in March, Manny had already arranged his next fight, which was in the July against Keith Thurman, which is his most recent fight last year. So just before he started his training camp was the time that I was going to start training myself to do the marathon thing. And I was, I was searching here and there for different um, organizations that I could align my, my, myself with and searching for different kids foundations, different uh, types of um, charities and stuff. And I was hitting a few brick walls, you know, I wasn't getting responses from some people. Some people were, responding but it wasn't it was all very vague and I was just I was coming to the point where I was like like is this going to happen you know am I just going to give up and then within two or three days Manny had already uh, he just started that new foundation so it's a brand new foundation really it's been open about a year because as you know and as probably a lot of people know Manny is very he's a big philanthropist you know he gives away a lot of money um he does a lot of things for the people and I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen him giving away so much money. It's unbelievable. Just like that. And I think it probably came to a realization that if he wants to make a big impact in a big way, he needs to do it on a grander scale. And I think that's where the birth of the foundation came from. And the foundation, just to, 
just to run through what they do is just literally just doing everything from building homes to setting up uh, education schemes for kids, you know, food programs, all of the kind of good stuff that people need. And um, it was just like, it was one of them things where I just said, it's a no brainer. I've got the connection with Manny. I know he's a good guy. I know that all the money's going to be going to a good, to the right place. And I was just like, that's it. I'm doing it. I'm giving everything to him. And it was also a way for me to pay him back in terms of saying thanks to all the like inspiration that he's given me, all the opportunity that he's given me. Um, and yeah, it was just like a marriage made in heaven, as they say, you know. So mm-hmm. it was just a no-brainer. And and the good thing about it was is that. I had, I now had the um, exposure of the Manny Pacquiao Foundation to kind of elevate what I was doing onto a wider scale, because now I was not only um, promoting to people in the Philippines or in my own friends and family circle, I was going global, bro. I was going to places like there was people donating from America, from South America, from Germany, from. There was a guy, when we tallied up how much money I'd raised, there's a guy in the UK who, when I saw his name, I I didn't recognise it. He donated three grand to what I was doing, you know? So it kind of gave me that platform at the same time. So it was was a perfect marriage, basically. That's amazing. I think with the the Manny Pacquiao Foundation, it's... It's re- like you mentioned, it's recently founded. Um, I saw it supported by some some big some big names. I, I believe Dana White from the UFC actually yeah. supports money, which is you know, and it's fantastic because, as you said, Pacquiao gives his money, he gives back to the people, but more importantly, he gives his time. I think that's just as as valuable in a way because he. I've seen him on the ground actually helping these people. I've seen the videos, you know, you've seen it firsthand um, and it's inspiring. And it's great that he's allowed um, your platform to, to inspire and continue the message that he's trying um, and he, the actions he's trying to do every day for the people of the Philippines. Um, so talk more about 30 and 30. So, of course, I know a lot about the ultramarathon. I followed you <laughs> in your journey. You donated as well. So yes. thank you. On record, <laughs> thank you for your donation, bro. It went thank you, right James. <laughs> um, you, it's... You went through the whole ups and downs, and I, I can't wait for you to actually tell the people about it. But for the people that don't know what the 30 and 30 is, the ultra marathon, um, would you uh, care to explain exactly what it what it consists of? Yeah, so basically, um, for those of you that don't know, like the Philippines in terms of logistics, if you look at a map of the United Kingdom, it's a pretty similar size, isn't it? It's obviously fractured into a lot more pieces, like in terms of islands, because Philippines is an archipelago. And, uh, but you, if you're talking in terms of distance, you're looking at about the same distance as the UK. So I kind of, as I said to you before, I'm going to adjust my light there. As I said to you before, I wanted to do something crazy. I wanted to do something stupid. And, and I thought, what can I do? Originally, I was going to cycle from the furthest point north to the furthest point south in the Philippines. And when I looked on, on the internet and see if anybody had ever tried to achieve it, it's not that uncommon people were doing it. So I said, you know what? I'm going to run. I'm going to go on foot. 
at the time, I didn't realize what I was saying to myself, but I was just like, I convinced myself that I'm going to do this. And I literally run with it from there. I was just like, I'm going to, I'm going to set this up. So the 30 in 30 basically means I was going to cover 30 miles a day for 30 days in a row from north to south in the Philippines. That was, that was what I was attempting to do. And I don't even like running. (laughs) (laughs) Let me rephrase that. I like running, but I don't like long distance running and I don't like... I basically wanted to do the things that I don't like doing. So I was basically, I was punishing myself, you know? I wanted to punish myself in sense to kind of, you know, I wanted to go above and beyond. I wanted to test myself and I wanted to kind of, um, yeah, I just wanted to do something unique that would cause a lot of um, interest. So that's where it all started. So I remember the time that you were going to start your venture. there was a lot of awareness spread. So you were on TV shows, as you mentioned, um, a lot of donations all around the world. Did you feel that pressure? Um, yeah, I felt, I felt the pressure probably after the first day that I started when, as you know, as, as you know, again, cause you watched my whole journey, I completed the first day uh, in the north part of the Philippines and the next day there was a typhoon or sorry overnight there was a typhoon now again for you guys out there that know the Philippines this, the kind of rain season wet season it runs through the middle of the year so where in the UK you like have your summer which is like August time I was running in <laughs> wet season which I don't know why I've done that but so <laughs> after that first day when it was apparent that I couldn't run and now I've already committed myself to running 30 miles every day. I was like, what am I going to do? That's when the pressure started coming on top of me because now I've got the whole world basically watching me because people were tuning into my stories. People were tuning into my lives. I was taking over the Instagram page of the foundation. And that's when it started to come on. Like, like the realization hit me that night. Not only have I got a commitment to myself and my plan, but I've got a commitment to the guys that have, um, the guys and girls that have given me their hard-earned money, you know what I mean? Whether that was a pound, 10 pounds, or a million pounds, you know? Which no one did, by the way, but you, you understand where I'm coming from, yeah. So there was a bit of pressure in that sense, definitely. One of the, one of my frustrations in the Philippines, you know, I don't, I don't blame the country, but in terms of, because I work in digital and tech. So one of my frustrations is I can never get good Wi-Fi. <laughs> so I don't know how you were updating us. Because you were even updating from a boat at one point. Yeah. <laughs> you were sending like messages in a boat. I don't know how you were getting internet connection. Can you explain that to me? Do you know what? I think the actual 4G or whatever it is is pretty strong here, to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was just a case of just finding pot spots and yeah. Um, as you know, in the, again in the Philippines, is that all the malls have got um, Wi-Fi because there's a big there's a big mauling um, culture in the Philippines because of the weather. So it was it was literally just wherever you can do it. I mean, as as you go, as you know, I was I was recording off of bridges, I was recording off of boats, I was yeah. um, you know back of motorbikes and going back to my hotel after the day's run and all that so it's just a case of just doing it as I could you know so yeah, yeah what, what one of my favorite movies um for it reminds me of Forrest Gump 
because he he goes on that oh, run, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> you probably everyone, you probably everyone, heard everyone this already. Me that, man. Everyone called me. That. I'm getting tired a bit after a while, you know. Sorry, I Bob. know. I mean, I mean, you, you grew the beard, isn't it? And then I you did, went on did. the run. <laughs> um, I did have the beard as well. And then Only because Forrest, I, I, forgot pack, I forgot to pack my razor, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> and then Forrest was, of course, you know, he was running because um, he had, well, it's not a real story, but in terms of his, his character, he was having, you know, frustrations in his life. Um, and he wanted to find a way to get back. And it was more of a, it was just an idea, right? It's not that you planned everything. You, you didn't expect the, the overwhelming reactions that you got from people. It's, 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 it's just that the whole concept inspired people and, and you know, it's bringing people together. It's in, it ties with the, the message and the mission statement of, say, the Manny Pacquiao Foundation. Um, yeah. I was also reading stories and also keeping up to date in terms of, you know, people think, wow, you know, you completed it, but the insides of, you know, running, getting blisters, getting injuries, you know, body aches, um, waking up next day is not actually feeling like you can complete this because 30 miles a day, 30 and 30 is a difficult, um, more, as you, as you mentioned, crazy idea of completing it, but yeah. you managed to do it. But describe those, you know, those pains, those aches, those days that you feel, oh man, I can't actually physically do this, but you found ways. Yeah, so I mean, just to set the record straight, I, I, I went through the 30 days, but I didn't complete the 900 miles. I didn't do the 900 miles. So that was a little bit of a disappointment at the end. But obviously, when I, I think I completed like just over half or in kilometers, I did 770 kilometers in 30 days, which is still an amazing achievement. It's an average definitely, of... Definitely. I think it's an actual average of about 19 miles a day. Maybe someone can correct that or calculate it. But, bro, that was like, I think the most days that I run in a row without a break was uh, seven or eight, where I literally covered 30 miles. There was days where I was walking because I couldn't run anymore. And it was taking me the whole day to do it, like 12, 13 hours with a backpack. Walking through the Philippines on my own, with my Strava as the only proof that I've got that I'm doing it, the rain just lashing down on me. Like you said, I had, you see the pictures of my feet where I'd like, I think I had six toes left at the end that were fully functioning. I had, I had a five day bout of diarrhea um, during the event as well, where I was literally having to take, um, what's the tablets, the um, Imodium is it? I was having to take a modium tablet just to make sure that I didn't have an accident while I was 15 miles down the road in the middle of nowhere, you know? So oh, I went through it all, man. I went through, there was days where I remember one particular day where I was so dehydrated that I, I almost collapsed on the street and I had to quickly run to the pharmacy just to buy salt tablets to, to electrolyte myself, you know? And I drank seven litres of water that day as well. So you can imagine that's, that's um, because of the heat, the sheer heat and the sunburn that I was getting. And oh my God, if I knew what I was going to go through while I did go through it, I probably would have just said, nah, forget that. I'll just, you know, maybe I'll cycle it instead. But yeah, I think the thing that kept me going the most each and every day was like, if I quit on day 20 or day 25, that's five or 10 days 
that people can't donate uh, for the, the people that needs the money. Do you know what I mean? For the people that I'm raising the money for, they're the ones that I was thinking about at 10 o'clock at night in the, in the rain, running through a city that I've never been to before on my own, trying to complete my miles for the day and stuff like that. So it's just pure inspiration at times and mental. You know, when you do something like that, it's no longer about the physical. I mean, you'd be surprised what the human body can put itself through uh, in terms of physical capacity once you start using this. And um, I mean, to run 30 miles every day, people run a marathon and it takes them months to recover. And I've never gone over half a marathon distance in my life before that. So it was a mental game more than anything. But yeah, it was difficult, but hey, this, this is what we're put on this earth to do, isn't it? We're here to face um, adversity and, and uh, get through it, you know? As you mentioned, you know, you were walking um, at times because the physical impact of running um, and, the, you know, every day your body's taking hits. Um, what people also don't realise is that you, you, as you mentioned, you were on your own. You didn't have yeah. a team behind you. Um, you didn't no. have people um, out there to support you. It, it, it can. It's a true test of your of, of character going through that for sure. Um, walking through the Philippines and 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 going from north to south. Did you? What, what did you actually see? You know, the, is there any things, uh, experiences, and memories that you thought, wow, you know, that really opened your eyes and, and something that will always stick with you forever. As soon as you say that, my mind just flashes back to like one or two particular days where um, I'm pretty sure everybody out there remembers the typhoon that happened in the Philippines, right? 2013, I think it was, where like some 10,000 people lost their lives. And I remember that, that particular city where that got the most um, global um, news coverage was Taklaban. I'm sure if I say that name now, it will resonate in a lot of people's minds, but that was one of the cities that I was looking forward to going to. And when I got there, it was just unbelievable. I mean, to see how the place is now, uh, it was five years after the incident. I went and got, uh, actually got in touch with a, a guy from a local running team there who saw my story on Facebook and he was like, mate, I want to join you. you know, I want to run with you for the day and that. And I was like, please come. And uh, we set off at two o'clock in the morning one morning and he took me to all the mass burial sites where all the bodies were buried. And then he, he led me around to all the new um, housing schemes that they've been putting up for all the displaced people. And yeah, it was, it was, it was difficult at, at times to see everything, but then it was also heartwarming at the end of it to see how people have gathered their lives again. And, and uh that, that day sticks in my mind and it will never leave me, you know, and to see that place now, it's such a youthful, vibrant city where everyone was happy now, all the kids were playing around. Um, and they've got this particular bridge there as well, which links two um, different parts of the Philippines and it's the longest bridge in the Philippines called San Juanico Bridge. If you guys Google it, you'll see this bridge. It's unbelievable. It is so steep and you, I actually cried that day. That's the only day that I cried on that journey. And it wasn't because I was in pain. It wasn't because I was um, sore or, you know, had sunburn or diarrhea. It was just because I got to the top 
I stopped my um, track car, stopped my watch, and I just took a moment and I just burst out in tears. And I was like, this is why you're here, man. You know, this is the experiences that you've come for. And just looking all out across the sea and just, I was just going through a whole range of emotions in my life at that point and just like literally just having all these flashbacks and then within a couple of minutes it was gone again and I was on my way and I think that day I actually covered the most distance I ever covered in a day which was like 68 kilometers I covered in 11 hours on foot which is like 42 wow. miles 42 miles yeah so that's probably the one particular day that stuck in my mind and it was just like yeah it's like this is what we live for, man. <laughs> I'm speechless um, in a way because I remember that. I, I remember that time in uh, 2013, 2014. Um, mm. It was Typhoon Um or some people call it Typhoon Haiyan. Um, I remember see, yeah. I I raised funds. Um, I did a fundraiser uh, at that time at the University of Westminster. Um, I actually flew to Philippines to get to to give personally the the donations that were raised to the philippine red cross um yeah. yours yeah and i and i saw them and they were showing me the models of the buildings and the schools that they were going to do to rebuild yeah. the city of Tacloba. um and i also went to abs cbn because what we did was uh everyone that donated um shout out to the University of Westminster at that time because they gave everything, you know. So I remember one guy took off his Jack Wills hoodie on campus mm -hmm. and put it in a box. He said, I don't need it. These oh. people need it. Yeah, so we, we, we delivered, I think, around seven to eight boxes um, and also raised grand of thousands of pounds for them. Uh, and I remember going to the ABS-CBN at that time because um, we decided to donate half to ABS-CBN, half to Philippine Red Cross. And it was the same. I went to the offices. They showed me, uh, as you described, you know, the buildings that they were going to build, the schools, um, how they were going to rebuild the city that had, had, you know, had been through so much damage and so much hurt. Um, and to hear that story now, well, I'm, that's why I was speechless, because I'm like, as it's been so long, because it's gone so quick. But it's great to see that the city is, is, in, a, is in a right, it's in a right place in a positive place now um and th and those memories that you mentioned those are the ones that will stay with you for the rest of your life you know 100 um, yeah i was always looking forward to that particular day as well because i i i specifically plotted my route to go through there because i was like i want to go i want to see it and uh yeah I, what i discovered from that particular town is that the reason they get hit so much is because it's they're on sea level so the sea is there and literally the houses are on the same level and I'm like, wow, that's, yeah. So, but luckily they've, they've learned to deal with like, they've basically all them new places that you talked about, they've made sure that they're up on a level now. So they're all on hillsides and stuff like that. So yeah, it's good. It's, it's a very, very um, heartwarming experience to go there, man. Very heartwarming. Finally, after moving from Tacloban, um, was that mid your journey or were you coming near to, nearer to the end? Do you remember? Yeah, no, that was pretty much coming to the end of it. Then I just had to make another sea crossing to get to my next, um, to the last island. And then it was pretty, pretty much the last couple of days. So, that so, was, as you, um, 
Mm, as you mentioned, it, it gave you kind of like a burst of energy, right? Burst of, uh, uh, in a way, uh, you get that second win, like say you're in a boxing fight and then you told me you, you ran, the, was it four extra, was it 40 kilometers that you ran that day or? 42 miles. 42 miles, sorry, yeah. <laughs> crazy. Um, 42 miles and then now we're coming up to the end of your journey. Describe that feeling, you know, was it a relief? Was it, um, did you feel like, yes, uh, of course you didn't achieve the miles that you wanted to, but in terms of the actual days, um, you completed it, you went through the, the hardships, you went through the sacrifice. How was that feeling coming up to the end of your campaign? I just couldn't wait to go home. <laughs> <laughs> Simple Seriously. terms. <laughs> just to be blunt about it, yeah, I was just like, I want to go back to Manila, I want my bed, right. I want to have a beer, you know, <laughs> I didn't, just simple things, basically. So my fr I remember the last day I landed in, um, on my last destination, and my friend kindly come and picked me up, because um, her and her family lives in that particular area, and um, she brought me to the house, they had a big party there. We had a load of food, um, you know, a typical Filipino party, uh, cracked open a bottle of whiskey. And it was just kind of, it was just one of them uh, relief moments, you know? I had a beard down my chin, like almost down to my neck. Uh, and it was just like, I'm done. I'm just done mentally, physically, emotionally, I was gone. And I was just like, I just want to go home now, so. But also that kind of, it was, it was a mixed emotions, as you can imagine when you've been through something like that, where you've literally been living out of touch with reality for that 30 days. You're just almost living like, it's almost like being in the Truman Show, where everything's on you, you know what I mean? People are just watching you all the time. And it was nice to get out of that. Um, I was a little upset because I didn't achieve the miles that I wanted to achieve. But then when I calculated everything and I was like, mate, You've just done unbelievable there. So the overriding um, feeling was one of relief and one of achievement. So, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's about going back to that normality, isn't it? That routine, because when you are yeah. on your journey, it's unexpected what, what's going to happen the next day. For example, like you said, someone messaged you out of the blue uh, and Takloba and was like, oh, you know what? I love your journey. I want to join you. And you don't know what's going to happen the next day. I mean... In life, we don't know what's going to happen anyway in the future. But going back after, you know, putting yourself through that intense experience, those 30 days, it's a relief, isn't it? Just to see your bed. And you said, just to enjoy the, the little things, having a drink with your, you know, your, your friends. Um, so what was the, was, what was post campaign like, you know? Um, how was the reception that you got? Uh, how was the support from the people? That was great. I mean, it actually took me about a week to adjust to life. Like that might sound strange. <laughs> yeah. It probably sounds strange, but it was like, I got up the first morning and I was like, oh, what am I going to do today? <laughs> do you know what I did? I went out and had a run. Because <laughs> <laughs> your body is, because the thing is your body's been through that for 30 days. So you're, yeah. you've developed that habit and your body's, actually probably getting into that habit now so i'm not surprised yeah. yeah no it was it was strange it was a strange one because um it was almost like uh i don't know you feel someone's been shipwrecked for a month and they all all of a sudden they're put back into humanity they'd probably be like whoa what's going on here mm. and it was kind of like that for me it took me a couple of days to adjust i'm just chilling out 
Um, obviously, that's the time when everything was getting correlated with the foundation in terms of financials, how much had been raised. I was just getting a lot of thanks and praise and it was great, you know. Not that I'm one who seeks adulation, but I'm quite shy when people say things like that to me, but it was, it was nice. It was nice, nice to just feel that sense of like I've done something positive, you know. And um, yeah, it was just a case of tying up all the financials, like I said, uh, saying thanks to people on social media and just trying to get back to the next stage of my life, you know, from there. Did you get did you get a message? Did Manny give you some support? What did he say after that? Yeah, no, no, it was ev everybody was great, man. Everybody was great. Like I think the realization of what I'd done kind of hit everybody and it was like, you know, thank you very much and all the rest of it. So yeah. And and the most important thing was that I mean, not that the money's not the most important thing, but even the money that I raised was quite, you know, it was way beyond what I'd imagined would would be raised because it was something in the region of like 11 or 12,000 US dollars, which is a lot of money, you know, it's, it's a lot of money. And, and, it, and that served five people that, that basically built five houses for like five affordable houses for people in the Southern Philippines. And that, that was the most um, important thing for me was the fact that five families now have a home to live in because of what I had done for the last 30 days. So that was like amazing, you know? That, that's truly inspiring, uh, James, if you, you know, and, uh, and it, when they, are they building these houses or how does it work? Um, do you know yeah. the plan, how it works with the, you know, is there a timeline, etc. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's ongoing. Uh, so they've, they've got like little um, sprouted communities all over Mindanao, which is in the Southern Philippines where, they're building, uh, has, how to explain it, like little, basically little villages, like man-made villages, yeah, yeah, yeah. Towns and like with houses and that. So it's an ongoing project. It's, it's never mm. going to stop, you know, because I think Manny has big ambitions to build a lot of um, houses, hospitals um, and stuff like that. So it's, it's an ongoing process, yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to be a beautiful thing when you actually see it there physically i mean when you mentioned the story with the takloba and it, it really took me to a yeah. different different world and different emotions when i was actually listening to it because i was like wow you know uh you actually see the fruits of your labor in a way uh, the works that you've done you know the the money that you that you've raised um and the actual results of it i think that's the one um i think will definitely uh it has an everlasting effect as i say um, truly inspiring, James. So now, um, 30 and 30, great campaign, inspiring. You're in the Philippines. Um, I know your personal training out there. What's it like to, to be a personal trainer in, in the heart of, say, BGC Manila? Yeah, it's good. I mean, um, again, this is a, it's a new thing to me as well, because although I've coached in the past, um, this was like the next step on my journey now. So... I'd obviously landed in the Philippines. I'd done the whole training camp with Manny. So I'd committed my whole two or three months with him. Uh, then I'd done the, the 30 and 30 campaign. So now it was the next step. It was now about me. Um, I'd already kind of been qualifying myself in the months and years previous anyway. Uh, so it was just a case of now getting myself out there, marketing myself, meeting new people 
again, it was like the start of a new journey. And um, yeah, it's been it's been good so far, man. I'm I'm really enjoying it. You know, I love I just love that kind of interaction with people. I like taking people from one place to the next. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's hundreds of coaches watching this now, and they're probably thinking the same thing. You know, it's a it's a you get a good sense of satisfaction out of it and um it's early days for me at the moment obviously what's happening in the world right now has put a spanner in the works but um yeah in the main i'm, do, I'm doing okay i've got um, a few good clients with me um some of the, uh, some of them are one in particular is um as you know is manny's son who has aspirations to become an amateur boxer so i've kind of He's entrusted me with taking care of his strength and conditioning, which is great. And I get to try new things on him. And um, yeah, we'll see where it goes from here, really. <laughs> it sounds really good, James. I think um, looking back, I, I remember seeing stuff you were training. Uh, you got a good clientele out there. So you're training like boxers out there as well that I saw. Um, training like actors, you know, you've, you've got a good network there. Um, so in terms of what you mentioned in, in Manny's son, is this Manny Pacquiao Jr. that you're training? Yeah, so Manny's oldest son, his name is yeah. um, Emmanuel. He's got aliases as well, like Jim Well, what I call him, bro. <laughs> 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 yeah, so, yeah, just he's my little bro, you know what I mean? He's my yeah. bro. So I kind, of, I kind of, I knew that he was training in boxing. I knew that it started out because obviously he's trying to follow in his dad's footsteps. He's, he's got that kind of level that he wants to get to. And I was just like, I was thinking, you know, I'm trying to make my name now in a different industry. Because, uh, I, I mean, I am a personal trainer, but I, I do like working with athletes because I have that athletic background myself. So I like to do more of the strength and conditioning side of it. So it was like, I said to myself, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take, take him on board and work with him and, and uh, see if he's in, he would be um, up for entrusting me in looking after that side of the thing in, in his strength and conditioning. It's been great so far, you know, he's been getting results and um, we'll see once this uh, whole virus thing goes by, um, we hopefully get back to it and start setting him up on his amateur career as well. How's his progress? Has he actually, has he actually made a, a, an amateur debut yet or? I think he's had like five fights so far and he lost one, which was his last fight. And that's because he was not prepared. Uh, I think he's fighting above his weight a little bit in terms of like he has a lot to get down to. So that's where I kind of wanted to put myself in because he does his boxing training. I think to his credit, his dad tries to stay away from it as much as possible. Because you, you see in a lot of sports, uh, whether that's boxing, whether that's football, sometimes having a famous dad can put a lot of pressure on an individual. Sometimes they rise to the occasion, but I can't think of too many sons who have outdone their fathers in sport. I can't think of too many off the top of my head. Maybe Floyd Mayweather, maybe Frank Lampard. Um, but... Other than that, it's quite hard to follow in your dad's footsteps. So I think his dad's taking a back seat. He's got his boxing coach. Um, I'm looking after his, his strength and conditioning side. And so far, so good. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a really smart kid. He's, um, he, he's got a lot of heart and determination. He's a very good listener. 
and uh, we're already starting to see good results. But obviously, with the um, the virus, has put us family in the works, as I said. And actually, I think since the lockdown, he's been doing a lot of training with his dad on the pads. So I had a conversation with him last week, I think it was, and I was like, "How's it going? How's, how are you training with your dad and that?" And he's just like, "Yeah, he's like kind of changed my whole style." my stance, my footwork and everything. So that's only a positive, I guess. How old is Manny Pacquiao, Junior, Emmanuel? Uh, 19, just turned 19 <coughs> in January. So he's very fresh, you know. He's got a lot ahead of him. He's got big ambitions, you know. He's, I, I remember asking him about a year ago, actually before I started my marathon, before I was even coaching in the Philippines, I was having a conversation with him and I was saying, what do you want to do? I was like, you know, you don't have to box. You know, your dad's paved that way for you to not have to follow that path you know what I mean and then and he was just like no I love it I want to I want to represent the Philippines so I was like wow this kid has he's got something about him you know obviously you can see where it comes from do you know what I mean because his mum yeah. both his mum and his dad are very gritty characters they're very determined people very great uh, very nice people and um yeah so he wants to represent the Philippines um, I kind of said I'll commit myself to helping you do that as well as your boxing coaches and whatnot. So, yeah, we'll see where that journey takes him, you know. It's, it's the pressure, isn't it? Uh, because you're the son of, of, of an athlete or daughter of an, a famous athlete, um, they, they always apply that to themselves. Does he, do you see that when you're training him? Do you, think, do you see that in his movements, his eyes, his body language, his behaviour, that he feels there is pressure on him? It's hard to tell. I don't know. I, I don't think so. I don't think there's a, he feels a pressure to achieve something. I, otherwise, I don't think he'd put himself in that situation. The impression that I get um, is that he's seen the kind of adulation and the level that his dad's got to, and he's like, I want a bit of that. I want some of that. You know what I mean? I, I like the, the, the thought of having that success, having that attention, um, being successful, being loved, being well-known. He's well-known, obviously, already. He, he doesn't have to be a boxer to do that. He's already a big celebrity in this country. He's on TV. He does endorsements. He's a model. He does everything. So the fact that he's even putting himself in the ring in the first place tells me the kid's got determination, you know? So no, I don't think he feels the pressure, but I... He, he, I think he's more the flip side of that. He just, he wants that kind of, I want what you've got, Dad. You know what I mean? And mm. may, maybe it's also a thing of wanting to, um, how do I describe it? Like, he wants to, his dad to kind of say, yeah, you know, like, I want to, I want to prove something to you, Dad. I want to prove that I can do this. You know what I mean? And show you that the education that you gave me as a son and whatnot is, you know, I'm gonna repay you with that. So that's the impression. I mean, I, get. I, mean I mean, his dad built him, built a life for, for his family, um, not just the family. You know, a lot of helping out in the Philippines with the people there. It's it's all about making him proud, isn't it? Um, he wants to make him yeah. proud, um, and it sounds like he wants to create his own identity as well. And it, I'm I'm not too sure. I don't know the ins and outs, but you know, it, it's good to follow in say someone's footsteps. But it's good to, like you said, he's already building his own brand. Remember, we go back to our athlete uh, conversation in the beginning about building a brand. Yeah. So it, it sounds like he wants to do it his own way, in a, in a way. Like he wants to take what his father's done, um, but he wants to apply his, his, his own 
personality, his own style towards it. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think I don't know if boxing will be his thing that he wants to follow through full time because I think I know he loves acting. Um, obviously, like I said, he does a lot of endorsement work and he's got his agents, he's got his family behind him and stuff like that. So maybe the boxing journey for him is a temporary one. Maybe it's one where he thinks, you know, I want to represent my country at the Sea Games or the Olympics and that'll be it. Who knows? He might want to turn pro. You just never know. So I think, like I said, the fact that he's actually putting himself into that now, um, I'm like, yeah, good on you, man. Go for it, you know. Do Take it as far as you want to take it. And um, you've got options if you don't want to go pro or you can't make it to a successful level. So We'll be definitely following the journey, James. So we'll be looking and, and seeing where, you know, the future's bright for sure for both of you, uh, um, definitely. Um, so it's been a great conversation, actually. And, and thanks again for joining the podcast. Just a couple of uh, just random questions that I think I'll throw out at the end. Um, yeah. I wanted to actually ask you your thoughts quickly on Fury or Joshua? Man, don't do this to me. <laughs> love, love Joshua, man. He's my guy. I've followed the guy since his debut, and ah, uh, it's a hard one. I, if you're gonna put me on a spot, I'm just gonna say Joshua knocks him out. I know that's gonna wow. cause him out, but I'm just gonna say Joshua knocks him out because I don't like. Listen, Tyson Fury is an unbelievable boxer, and you know what he done against Deontay Wilder was was quality. But he's not invincible. He's shown that in previous fights. He's been hurt. He's been rocked. He's been down by guys that are half the size of Joshua. And whilst Josh don't have the same level of ability, I think that um, Joshua is a better version of Deontay Wilder. I always believed that Wilder was only one good opponent away from getting cleaned out. And it proved that in the last fight. But I think Joshua's, although Joshua had that blip against Andy Ruiz, I still think he's made a better stuff. And I could see Joshua knocking him out, to be honest. I mean, we could definitely have a conversation. Don't about replay this. Like... Don't replay this when you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think we could have a, a longer debate about it, but I think you summarised it very well. Um, my, I think I, I would go with Fury. I just believe um, he's taken Wild. I think Wilder's the hardest puncher out there in the heavyweight division. Um, he's taken Wilder's best, and I, I, I don't think many people get up from what, what Wilder has actually hit Fury with. So. And I've seen holes in Joshua. I just think if you, you're talking about Joshua um, as in a Joshua that's prepared for the fight, that he comes in mentally and physically 100%. Uh, no, no one's 100%, but he just the mindset's there. So I definitely think if Joshua approaches this, uh, not like how he approached Ruiz, of course, um, and his, some of his other recent fights, I don't think they're his best. But, you know, if you go back to his, 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 you know, when he fought Klitschko, those are the days. I think if he approaches that 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 mindset, um, I think it would be a very difficult fight for Fury. Um, I think it would be very, very close. Uh, but I think Fury takes it. That's my personal view. Um, I just think his boxing IQ is out of this world. Uh, I don't think uh, a lot of people can match Fury in that boxing. But that's my view. Um, do you want to touch on anything else, what I've said? No, listen, it's one of them fights where it's a 50-50 fight. And um, 
Some might favour one guy, some might favour the other, but this is top level sport and this is why we want to see it, right? So <laughs> everybody's going to have their opinions and listen, get both guys in the ring. I think too much in boxing these days, the top fighters are not fighting the top fighters, you know? Mm. And that's because of sporting politics, it's because of money. So the fact that the two guys are seemingly willing to get in the ring together, great. Let's get it on. Let's have a couple of great fights for the UK, even though they'll probably be abroad. And yeah, long may it continue. The best fight in the best, you know? Yeah, I heard it's going to be in Saudi. I mean, um, I think they've agreed on it. Joshua just needs to, to get through one more fight. I believe that's in, in the winter time. Hopefully there's no banana sips there. Um, but if he gets through that, then I believe they're going to fight. Um, and it's, it's, it's all written. It's in black and white. So I'm excited for it. I think um, that's, that's a fight. Everyone wanted Joshua and Wilder. But of course, what happened to Wilder now everyone's putting Fury and Joshua together. So I think that's the, the fight a lot of people have been waiting for. Um, any shout-outs? So any, any um, things you want to mention, your PT? Can we follow your journey? You know, Instagram stuff. Any shout-outs you want to add now before we end the podcast? Yeah, just uh, you guys, if you, uh, if you like my story, you're interested in following my journey here in the Philippines, I'm sure you're going to stick up my handle after, but it's, it's James Fox on Instagram. Shout out to my boys at Cronk Clothing in the UK. For anybody who knows their boxing, this is probably one of the most famous, if not the most famous gym in, in, in the world in terms of boxing. And these guys, they, they back me with their clothing and stuff like that. So if you guys are looking for some nice boxing apparel, get over there. You know, I don't want to plug too much on your channel, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's, yeah. So social media, Instagram is my thing. That's where I'm, I'm most active. You know, I post a lot of, a lot of sporting stuff on there, a lot of Manny, a man, um, content involving Manny when he fights and things like that. So, yeah. But yeah, nice one, James. Thanks again for coming on to the podcast. Really appreciate the time. Um, I know I'll be following your journey. Um, it's great to see what you'll be up to and how your career unfolds. But yeah, thank you for sharing your inspiring stories. Look into more I, I, for, the, for, the, for the viewers and the listeners. Look into more on the 30 and 30 because I think that was uh, truly inspiring what you achieved out there. But yeah, um, take care of yourself. Uh, enjoy the Manila, uh, Manila weather. I think, I don't know if it's rainy season out there, but um, I'm pretty jealous. I wish I was in the Philippines. I missed the place so much. But yeah, take care, James. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, listen, bro, thanks for having me on. Um, I've seen the first two episodes that you've done, so shout out to those uh, two great guys that you had on. Um, and I know that this is going to be a very good channel, and one day we'll get back on together again. Definitely, definitely. I agree, man. Thank you so much, man. Take care. Take care.